Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. The events of the past months have made many people reconsider home, family, and education. In the Trinity 2020 96 thesis, which is the main quarterly publication of Wittenberg Academy, the writers consider these very topics. Joining us to discuss their articles are Pastor Larry Bean and Mrs. Liz Ekblad. Pastor Bean serves as chaplain and Paideia 4 teacher for Wittenberg Academy. He lives in Gretna, Louisiana with his wife, Grace, and shepherds the flock at Salem Lutheran in Gretna. Pastor Bean, you said in your article that everyone has a worldview, even those who claim not to. Why is this so important for Christians to understand as we engage with the world, digest media, and make educational choices for our children? Well, Jocelyn, it's a huge question, and it's an important question. And I, I think it's it, we, we really do have to start with the premise that everyone has a worldview or another. Even people who claim to be neutral or unbiased, that's just not true. One example of this, I think it's a, a, a very relevant example in our day and age. People will say, for instance, there's no absolute truth. This is a worldview that's contrary to the Christian faith. Obviously, Christians believe in absolute truth. We believe in the revelation of Scripture. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So we do believe in absolute truth. We're not the only ones who do, but we confess absolute truth. There are people sort of from the postmodernist end of the spectrum that say there is no absolute truth, that truth is a subjective phenomenon. And so when they, but when they say there is no absolute truth, what is that? That's a dogmatic statement of absolute truth. It's a self-contradicting argument to say that there is no absolute truth. And I think it's sort of the same thing with uh, with a worldview. To say, I have no worldview, well, you're, that's a statement of worldview. Your worldview is that you believe that you don't have a worldview. It's It's sort of a confession in a way. We really need to be cognizant that Nothing is neutral. I mean, everything reflects a worldview or other. That goes for, you know, especially in our day and age, as you say, we, we consume a lot of media, um, a lot of TV, movies, people binge watch things. Um, uh, th there's opportunities to interact with information in ways now with the internet and with uh, smartphones in ways that were not even on the radar screen, even, you know, 20 years ago. So um, it's we, we really do need to not take that bait or not accept the premise that anybody is neutral. I'm pretty sure it was CNN. A few weeks ago, one of the commentators said, we are neutral. We are not biased in either direction. You know, and, and, and there's a sense that maybe the guy was even being very sincere about it. But to anyone observing, I mean, whether no matter where you are on the political spectrum, it's very clear that CNN has a leftward uh, uh, viewpoint or worldview. And maybe like Fox News or OAN has a different, uh, more rightward uh, viewpoint. But it, to deny that you have a worldview is in an in a, in a ironic way to express a worldview, that's the difference between history and historiography, right? So the history happened and historiography is the record of that. And even within that, there is bias and the, the historiographer does his best to present 
a neutral account of history. But you read all of the historians and they start out by declaring their bias. You read Herodotus and Thucydides and all of these guys. And so it's, it's actually in some ways somewhat laughable that in our day and age, we somehow think that we have, have cleansed ourselves <laughs> of, of bias. It's especially amusing um, for us as Christians because, um, for instance, um, you know, in the days of modernism, before postmodernism, the narrative was that Christians are anti-reason. You know, we, we believe in divine revelation and the supernatural. So therefore, you know, if you believe in miracles, then you must be anti-science or you don't believe in, um, you know, you, 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 you are against logic and reason. And this was an argument of Ayn Rand, for instance, um, she believed in a very objective, materialistic worldview, and unapologetically so. And she claimed that people who believe in religion are anti-reason. Well, Ayn Rand is long gone now, and we've moved into the era of postmodernism. And it's really funny. I mean, we Christians haven't changed, but now we're the bastion of reason. You know, we're the ones saying that God created an orderly universe that no, two plus two really does equal four. It's an objective truth. And what we find is the non-Christian world has now become this realm of subjectivism, of feelings, of this sort of nebulous worldview that people can assert objective realities and, and, and interpret them and internalize them. And I mean, we really, really see it in the whole gender controversy. So it's really kind of amusing that we Christians have gone from being accused of being sort of a superstitious savages and and now we're the advocates of cold hard reason in the face of our more enlightened brethren who uh, believe that we've moved beyond reason that two plus two can indeed equal five if it makes people feel good right right so why is this particularly important this whole idea of worldview when we're making educational choices for our children, there are a lot of choices out there. You know, you have brick and mortar choices of all stripes. You have online choices of all stripes. And it, it, just in general, why is understanding that nothing is neutral, why is that important when we're making choices for our children? I think, in, for instance, in public schools, it's really, really evident because in public schools, for instance, the way they approach religion or the history of religion or Christianity, they have to completely skirt around these issues. The Latin text that I used to use teaching junior high kids was lingua latina, which is kind of a natural language-based uh, way of it's like an immersion, you know, kind of way of reading in Latin from day one. And I was on a group with a bunch of teachers, and and of course some of them were parochial teachers, private school teachers, public school teachers, homeschoolers, the whole mix. And everybody loves this book. It's a wonderful text for teaching Latin. Well, some of many, not just some, but many, if not most, of the public school teachers actually had to skip a chapter of the book because in the book, one of the characters is a Christian and there's a storm. They're on a boat and there's a storm and the Christian character prays to Jesus and the pagan character prays to Neptune. Well, it's, it's okay 
to talk about praying to Neptune. That was fine. But the public school teachers would not allow that part of the curriculum where the character prays to Jesus. They literally had to skip that section in the book because it just mentioned Jesus. It mentioned the the objective reality that there are people who pray to Jesus, whether you believe in that or not. And And so they accept the paganism, but downplay or omit the Christianity. And you can't teach Western civilization or Western history with that kind of bias, with that kind of worldview. You cannot honestly teach it. And so schools that are constrained and teachers that are constrained like this, whether it be because of public school dictates or simply because of biases in universities, there's a, a, an implicit bias and an explicit bias in many cases against Christianity in particular, and it skews the education. It, it gives a false view of education. And so, of course, we in the classical tradition We're not afraid of opposing worldviews. We're not afraid of reading the text and reading critically. But there's this fear in the sort of mainstream educational establishment that we there are certain names you can't even mention in the course of history. And so it's it's part of that whole cancel culture, you know, tearing down statues, pulling books, removing movies, and completely rewriting history in a truly Orwellian way that because a lot of these people, I suppose, haven't even read 1984. They don't even realize the irony of what they're doing. And it's interesting to ponder, and I haven't fleshed this out completely in my own pondering, but if you erase a certain segment of events or if you erase certain segments of history but choose to leave others it creates a chaotic view of what has happened because some things don't make sense without the opposing event or without the simultaneous event or without the corresponding event that gives value to or gives understanding to the events they want to keep. The the events they want to erase actually give meaning to the ones that they want to keep. Yeah, absolutely. A friend of mine many years ago put it this way. I think this is the best illustration of that. Let's say there's a divorce trial, right? Husband and wife are having a divorce and they're pleading their case before a judge. What if the judge only listened to one side? Like, what if only the husband or only the wife was allowed to testify? Even if the husband or the wife were trying to be fair and trying to be objective, You're not going to get the whole story unless you hear both sides, unless you hear all the voices. And so what we're seeing in in today's educational establishment, our culture, our entertainment world is, is, is a canceling of a particular viewpoint that is maybe a minority view or maybe is simply an unpopular view. It doesn't even have to be a minority view, but it doesn't conform to the larger narrative and the, and then the minority view or or a different perspective is usually labeled as something the lost cause mythology and then and then that's enough you don't have to refute it anymore you just invoke the specter you invoke the name and it's it, it you know it really becomes a sort of primitive religion they are truly superstitious it, instead of saying okay look we're going to look at all the points of view. We're going to read everybody critically. And it's almost like they don't have enough faith in their own viewpoint 
to allow it to stand on its own merits, to allow the ideas to come forth, to allow an investigation. I mean, can you imagine if a judge in a case actually said, well, we're not listening to wives' point of view in this courtroom. We are only going to listen to the husband's point of view, and I will render a fair judgment based on, uh, on that testimony. It would be declared ludicrous to take such an approach, for sure. So, Pastor Bean, is there such a thing as a Lutheran Christian worldview? Or should we just say Christian worldview? Is, is there anything distinctively Lutheran about the way we view the world? Wow, that is a really, really great question. You know, there's one expression that really kind of annoys me. People don't mean it in an annoying way, but I, it grates on my nerves when people talk about the Lutheran faith because our confessions never say that. In fact, it's it's funny. Our our confessions, our Book of Concord, never uses the word Lutheran. Right. It never, never even uses the word Protestant. But not counting. The, the times in the creeds, I think it's 13 times our book of Concord describes our faith as Catholic. Yeah. So we are the Catholic faith. We have a Christian worldview, a Catholic worldview. And so I, I like to go with that. But having said that, having said that, I like to think of that we have a Lutheran tradition within the Catholic faith, or we have a, a Lutheran ethos within the larger Catholic tradition. So you know, and, and, and think about, I mean, if you think about it, what forms our faith and our worldview as Lutherans, it's really the scriptures and as interpreted by the creeds, which themselves are derived from the scriptures. And then there's another layer of the 16th century confessions that grew out of the controversies in the Western church that we call the Book of Concord. And this, you know, this becomes our confessional standard that defines and refines us as the churches of the Augsburg Confession. And there really is a worldview there. And and then when you add on top of that our 500-year tradition of hymnody, our liturgical tradition, our theological writings from within the Lutheran world. You know, we have a vocabulary even. For instance, if I were to say this is most certainly true, you and every other Lutheran is going to have an impression of what I'm really saying when I say that. I mean, I could say that to a Baptist or a Roman Catholic or a Methodist, and they'll, they'll understand that I mean something is, yeah, that's true. But Unless you've immersed yourself in the catechism and you hear that almost like a litany, this is most certainly true, in the context of the Lutheran confessions, you're not really going to get it. So we Lutherans kind of have our own language in a way, like any other group or subgroup within Christendom or within academia, within the culture. Um, we have ways of relating that we have developed over 500 years of our tradition. So yes, I think we, we really do need to stress that we are the Catholic faith, we are the Catholic Church, but we do have a Lutheran tradition within that stream. And I think one of, I'm, I'm almost 99% sure that it was uh, Pastor William Swirla made this observation, and I thought it was utterly brilliant. There is no distinctively Lutheran doctrine in anywhere. I thought that is so profound because everything we believe, teach, and confess comes from the scriptures and the ancient church. 
We developed maybe new ways of communicating that Catholic faith. We came up with ways to articulate problems and controversies that came up later. But there literally is no uniquely Lutheran doctrine. You'll find what we teach on the sacraments, on salvation, on sin, on anthropology, on the infallibility of Scripture. Everything that we confess as a dogma, you will find elsewhere in Christendom that precedes the Reformation. I think that's important because it shows that we're not a cult. We are Catholic Christians. But having said that, I mean, my goodness, the richness of our hymnody to be able to quote a line when we Lutherans will refer to a mighty fortress, we, we all know that, you know, what we're saying there, because it's so embedded in our life together as Lutheran Christians. And and so, yes, I, I think it's fair to say we really do have a Lutheran worldview. How can we help our children establish this Catholic, obviously with a, a lowercase c, meaning universal, this biblical, this Lutheran heritage worldview? How can we help our, our children establish that lens through which they live and view the world. That's uh, also, that's a real challenge for us, for Christian parents, for Lutheran parents. And I think we have to get back to the basics. And the basics, of course, is the scripture. In the days before television and mass media and, and all of that, people read the Bible a lot more than they do now. You know, look at our grandparents and great-grandparents one of the things that we always inherit from them is their Bible. And it's always ragged, you know, from from use. So I think we really do need to get back to deliberate study of the Bible, reading of the Bible devotionally, praying the scriptures as families with our children. One of the things that my wife, Grace, grew up, she did not grow up Lutheran, but as a child, she received a gift of a children's Bible, and it's a beautiful, beautiful children's Bible. It's very accurate to the text with, with rich illustrations. Things like that, I think, are, are really, really helpful. And of course, layering on top of the scripture is the confessions. And now for children, the obvious, you know, is the catechism. We should incorporate the catechism in our devotions, in our instruction, you know, when we correct children, when we praise them for doing something well, um, when we teach them science, when we teach them anything. It's, it's great to work the catechism into our instruction with them. I ran across a great book. I wrote a, view, a review of it just a couple days ago on Gottesdienst Online. And this is such a brilliant, brilliant idea. It's from Cloria Press, K-L-O-R-I-A. And they produced this beautiful children's book. And I understand they have others now because I was hoping that they're going to do more of these. But what they did was they took the hymn, Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice, which is such a magnificent recapitulation of the Christian faith, of the Lutheran worldview, if you will, of the Catholic truths of the scripture incorporated in that magnificent hymn from our tradition, from our worldview. And what they did was they took Luther's text from the hymn and uh, Edward Riojas made illustrations based on what the, the hymn text is. So on the left page, you have the hymn text beautifully done with storybook style font with beautiful illuminated capitals. 
And then on the right side, there are these very subtle symbolism-rich pictures, but they're appealing for children. They're bright, they're bold, they're magnificent pictures that goes along with the text. And of course, the hymn text rhymes and has a pattern to it. It's poetry. So instead of reading the cat in the hat or, you know, something completely frivolous, which there's a time and a place for that, of course, but to bring in the richness of that hymn. And so children can learn this. They can learn the hymn. They can learn the pattern of the words. They can start learning the, the, the text before they even fully understand it. And you provide the scaffolding for them to hang their future learning on. And then when they come to church and hear the hymn sung, you know, my goodness, it's, it's, it just uh, all the cylinders are, are firing in their, in their little minds. I thought this was such a great idea. And apparently there are other hymns now that they've released in the similar format. So there are books like this that we can use with children. And also, if I'd like to point out too, the, it, it doesn't only have to be Christian stuff. Okay. So even though we are teaching from the point of view of the Christian worldview, the classical educational tradition also it baptizes, if you will, ancient pagan literature. So Aesop's fables, they're not explicitly from the Christian worldview, but we who confess a Christian worldview can certainly latch on to those, teach them, and, and use them as we have. I mean, we've done this for thousands of years. Christians have used the best of the pagan world as well to advance our Christian worldview. I mean, it takes it certainly takes a well-rounded uh, mind and a well-rounded teacher and a uh, someone f- fully immersed in the Christian worldview to be able to to bring that across. But I don't want anyone to think that you know to teach. Christian children that we must only teach them the Bible and the catechism and we shouldn't teach them, you know, Galileo and or teach them Homer's Odyssey. Of, of course, we should teach all of that stuff. But the primary worldview is that we have, it comes from the scriptures and the confessional writings. And so the Christian parent, their objective is, is truth, we we teach truth. And so whether that truth is in Aesop or in Homer or in Cicero or Herodotus or Ayn Rand, we focus on truth because we see truth and we know truth because we are immersed in Scripture. Absolutely. That's a that's a great way to, to re recap that. We want to form the Christian worldview in the minds of our, our young students, but we also want to open their minds up to reading from outside of the Christian tradition with being able to read it with a Christian lens, if you will. The way that Ken Ham at Answers in Genesis likes to describe worldview and how important it is, it's like the the glasses you look through. It's like the lenses you look through when you encounter your world. And so it's a duty of Christian parents to instill in their children the faith and to, and to make that not just an intellectual abstraction, but to, to make it the worldview, the lens through which children will read in just media, uh, the lens through which they interact with their peers and with all people. Uh, that's what it means to be a Christian. It, it, we confess the faith, but we also live the faith that we confess. And that's 
the power of what a worldview actually is. Sometimes people say that Christians, sometimes Christians say that Christians should not read things like the Book of Mormon or Mein Kampf or the Quran or the Communist Manifesto, or at the very least, that young people should not read these things. How does an understanding of worldview play into how we might respond to such concerns? Yeah, you're going right after the most controversial books that I teach in my class. I try, I try. That's awesome, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Uh, You're paying attention, you know. Uh, I'm not just getting away with stuff in the classroom. That's right, that's right. You're actually overseeing what we're teaching, so that's great. Uh, Actually, when I taught a few years ago at our parochial school, that concern did come up among, uh, we had a, a lot of non-Lutheran kids, and we had some some kids that were from a Pentecostal, more fundamentalist kind of background. And um, some of our kids, like in, I think it was fifth grade, they were studying mythology, and they were learning all these um, wonderful pagan morality tales, you know, and some parents did object to that. So it is an objection that does come up. And, and, and once again, I would reiterate the fact that we, we lay the groundwork with the scriptures, with the confession of the faith, with the Catholic faith, with our Lutheran tradition. And, and, and as, that, as that mind is being formed, uh, that frees up even young people to expand their horizons to read other works and to be able to subject them to critical thinking and to apply the Christian faith and life to those texts. They already know the first commandment. And so they know that when people are praying to Zeus, that this is sinful. But that said, these are stories, then, and the stories can have lessons in there. So they, there's a discernment that we want to develop. We don't want our children just to be turned out as robots and, and, and to be sheltered from everything the world has to offer. We want them to be discerning and wise. And so this is why... You know, cancel culture is so egregious. Like we talked about before, you really need to hear different points of view, even unpopular points of view, even ugly points of view. If you don't know the ugly, how are you going to know the beautiful? If you don't know the false, how are you going to know the true? If you don't know the bad, how are you going to know the good? And so just a a couple days ago, I, I put up a quote. I posted this. I said, if you want to be truly educated, pay attention to cancel culture Use it as a curriculum guide. Read banned books and forbidden authors. Watch canceled movies and pay attention to marginalized historiographies. And I really mean that because yeah. we're, we're in an age, we're in this sort of new age of book burning, only it's not done with bonfires of physical copies of literature. It's, it's, it's done with uh, peer pressure. It's done with, uh, you know, school boards. It's done with academic um, uh, you know, institutions uh, curating what people are allowed to see. And it's so ironic because, you know, it used to be that the left, they promoted this thing called Banned Book Week, right? right. And the, right. the libraries and the bookstores, they would promote all these banned books. And, and, and now it's the left that's doing the banning, you know? It's crazy. And so, so for instance, in, in response to that post I put up, one of my friends made a kind of a tongue-in-cheek reference to a Mein Kampf, you know, like, well, I guess uh, maybe you can tell me where I can get a copy of Mein Kampf. 
Well, of course, I'm not advocating the worldview of Mein Kampf. Right. Uh, how, however, he, I think he might have been taken aback a little when I said, well, I make my students read excerpts uh, or at least an, a chapter of Mein Kampf. But I think it's important. I mean, to, to be educated means that you read broadly. You have the ability to discern. You read the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then, and then to be able to, to call out of there things that, that help you advance your own worldview and to incorporate new things that you read into your personal body of knowledge and to integrate that into how you understand the world. And obviously, uh, you know, Nazism is an evil ideology. It's contrary to the Christian worldview. It's a, a source of human misery and human suffering. So, of course, we should study that in the same way that a, a doctor studies cancer. I mean, doctors become intimately involved in malignant cells and clumps and cancers and all of this stuff, not because they love it, but because they're, it's, it's the enemy. And so I think it's, it's really, really important to study these texts, whether they are explicitly hostile to Christianity, anti-Christian, the way the Communist Manifesto and uh, Mein Kampf would be, or whether they are uh, simply outside of the Christian confession of who God is, you know, so in studying competing religions, uh, because our, our young people are going to encounter these ideas. And so, you know, rather than hiding these ideas from them, and then when they get to college, like, why didn't you tell me there was this whole teaching of Mormonism? And then, you know, maybe it's the truth. Why are you hiding this from me? Oh, no, we'll, we'll show it to you. We'll read it in school. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll give you the books. Often you hear this, people who, who like these uh, Gnostic readings, they'll make it sound like the Christians have been hiding these these uh, the Gospel of Thomas, and they've been hiding these, and they've been denying the public the right to read these. Nothing could be further than the truth. We 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 read that stuff in seminary. We had the Pseudepigrapha, which is filled with uh, all of these crazy uh, spurious ancient writings. And I bought two massive volumes of the Pseudepigrapha, and we were encouraged to read them. I encourage people to read these Gnostic Gospels. I mean, if you read uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then go read the Gospel of Thomas, you'll know exactly why I'm telling you you should read it. It's, it's utterly ridiculous. It, it, it has no ring of truth to it. It doesn't mesh with the other eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. So obviously, we, we don't want to just put these writings out there without an instructor. We want to have a teacher, but we want to expose our students to all sorts of things and give them the tools they need to be discerning, to, to read critically, to be able to make a case for Christianity. The first thing that in my classes, the first thing that we, we do is we cover Christian apologetics and Christian worldview. And, um, and my goal is to guide our students. I mean, obviously, I can't make them expert apologists in a few weeks, but I, I do expose them to some great texts and some great teachers and encourage them to, to read deeper over the course of their lives and to see themselves as Christian apologists, because they, that's what a witness is. A witness is there to confess the faith and, and to make a case for the hope that is within us. And that's, and that's what we're charged to do by St. Peter in the New Testament. So that's part of what it means to be a Christian, not to hide these texts, but to reveal what's in them 
And it clearly shows the truthfulness and the beauty and the goodness of our Christian confession. Pastor Bean serves as chaplain and Paideia 4 instructor at Wittenberg Academy. Pastor Bean, it has been fantastic to have you join us here at the Wittenberg Hour. Thank you for sharing this truth and encouraging us as we give this truth to our children as they live in this world, but not of this world. Thank you, Mrs. Benson. And it's, uh, it's a privilege, privilege to speak with you uh, on these important topics. And I want to tell you what an honor it is, what a true joy and a privilege it is to be on the faculty of Wittenberg Academy. I, I often feel like I'm the dumbest guy in the room. That's the, certainly the case when our faculty all get together. And that's the best place to be, by the way, to be the dumbest person in the room, because that means you're always learning. But uh, to be part of our faculty is such a, an incredible honor. Thanks, Pastor Bean. Zekblad teaches grammar and quadrivium four at Wittenberg Academy. She lives with her husband Anders and their son Johannes in Wisconsin. Liz, thank you for joining me today on the Wittenberg Hour. In the most recent 96th thesis, our Trinity 2020 edition, Mrs. Ekblad wrote an article called The Case for Choosing Home. A fantastic article, and I commend that to all of you. One of the things that you discuss in your article is this idea that you can be anything you want to be. Why is that dangerous? Well, for one, it's just plain false. <laughs> and it really leads people to think that they can play God. So if you think that you can be anything, then you're not trusting that God has given you a vocation for what you should be because you can't have what you want. <laughs> We hear this all the time, right? I mean, right. you hear it in commercials, you see it on billboards, um, it, you, you see it on t-shirts, it, mm -hmm. it's everywhere. Where do we see ramifications of this type of thinking in our world today? I think the most obvious example is the, the weird gender identity stuff going on right now, because people really do think that they can just think up whatever they feel in the moment and they can be it. And our laws are going that way. Some of the government is supporting that. But I think on a deeper, less obvious example, we see this a lot in women. And that's what I wrote about in the article. And I think that women are choosing whether or not they want to have children based on their career aspirations or their feelings. And I think that this does come out of the idea of telling young girls uh, and boys that they can be whatever they want to be. And this is just simply not what God calls us to do or have a think. So do you think that this type of thinking is a reaction to something? I think you could totally argue that. And I think if you go back to like the 1920s, uh, when women were really pushing for independence from men, I think that's when this kind of all starts, at least for the women. I think this, this uh, as an idea that you can be anything you want to be, could be argued in so many different ways. But I think for the purpose of this, based on what I wrote about with staying home, I'm going to talk mostly about women. And I think women 
voting in 1920, and then Margaret Sanger and her whole birth control league in 1921, and which later evolved into Planned Parenthood. All of these things contributed to women gaining, thinking that they're gaining independence from men. And I find it really interesting that our culture has shifted from shaming women for working to now shaming them for staying at home. And in these days, there's far more judgment surrounding women who stay home. And socially, a woman who is successful, per se, seems to be more valued. But that's how the general culture perceives success. And that's through money. I think that we are reacting to women and the, all this feminist stuff and allowing women to do what they want rather than to do what they should be called to do. And we're missing out on the true value of an actual real Christian woman by allowing this to happen. And we're men are, or women are trying to become men. And I think that that's just really sad. So there is a certain gift in being a woman that these women are refusing to open. Is that potentially a way that we could look at that? A lot of women view being at home view motherhood and being a wife as a prison from which they need to (laughs) uh, be set free. You know, you, you brought up women's suffrage and, and all of these things, you know, that they needed to be released from the shackles of the men that bound them. Why is this idea of independence so prevalent? From what are we wanting, we being women, (laughs) <laughs> from from what are we wanting independence? Yeah, that's a really good question. I found when I first got married, uh, we got pregnant right away. So I was kind of thrown into it right away. I didn't really have the option to um, even start a career or do any of those things. And at first it kind of does, in a certain way, you feel like, oh man, this is terrible. I'm in this prison and all oh, but babies are cute and fun. And this is what God wants me to be. And I think it's interesting that even me, someone who's always wanted to be a mom, always thought to be home, still felt that way. And I think that the culture is really pushing our brains into that. But I don't know what we're seeking independence from, right? So having children is hard, right? Being a mom is hard. Raising a child who is in his terrible twos right now is hard. But I know it's so cliche to say, oh, but it's so worth it. And maybe even if you don't say that, That's what you're supposed to do. I think there are some dads that would love to stay home and be with their children instead of having to go make the big bucks or whatever you want to say. Being a dad is hard too. And I think that we're losing um, the appreciation for both of our jobs within, within parenthood. And women think that men have it so much better by being out in the workforce and not having to do with children that they're forgetting the value of their own job just because men and women are so different we're losing just the value of valuing each other and it's all becoming this big game of who's better who's bigger who's who's smarter and that's really not what this is about and so if you really think about it i don't know what we're trying to seek independence from it doesn't really make any logical sense right because right. being at home having children isn't a bondage my husband never gets to experience it or, or any men for that matter he never gets to experience what it's like to have a real life inside of you and have that that bond of mother to child. It's just so different, right? But then I don't get to experience what it's like to be the head of the household and all of these things and have my wife, I'm not a man, but if I were a man, <laughs> right, have right. a wife uh, submit to me and all the, right? So I think 
there is nothing to gain independence from. I think they're trying to gain independence from being a Christian person, if if anything, right? When we think about these things on these these larger terms and start to ponder the ramifications and all of that, it really, as you were just alluding, it really becomes a spiritual issue. Right. And it's kind of serious (laughs) (laughs) when when you think about it. But we make a lot of excuses, don't we? Oh my gosh, yes. You know, but... But I need to fulfill this or that, or I've been gifted in this or that. Right in the article, I was thinking about how when we grow up, we're always asked what you want to be when you grow up. People are are like funny or think you're cute if you respond that you want to be a parent or you want like, oh, I want to be a stay at home mom like my mom or something like that. Right. Or, who you know, I have students that have said things like that. And we write these career papers and we always are focusing on some type of money making endeavor. And so growing up, I was always known to be the teacher type and I was always a leader and all of these things. And I think that instead I should have had more direction toward using those things within a womanly vocation rather than just, oh, you're going to be a great teacher, teacher, teacher. But I am a great teacher within teaching my son, right? I can do those things even within my home. And I think it's really sad that we do take all of our talents and abilities and apply them to a workforce environment rather than within the home. And that's not bashing my parents or my upbringing or anything like that at all. I think it's just what the culture does. And so even if our parents are saying you should, because I grew up knowing that if you get married, you have kids. I just think the culture is so focused on making money. Like when Jesus said uh, the love of money is the root of all evil, he was certainly not joking. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is both pernicious and pervasive in yeah. terms of, of how ingrained it is in our world. And to a certain extent, it is almost impossible, it seems, <laughs> uh, for our world to grasp this idea of choosing home and choosing to be a, a mother and choosing mm-hmm. to be a father. And, and I should be careful with that, right? Because, you know, it's, it's not, uh, husbands and wives don't choose to be parents. God gives children, right. you know? And so it's not, it's not of our own choice or of our own free will or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. It's not our choosing that we have children. We are open to the gifts and the blessings that God gives us. Right. Why is choosing home and the associated vocations, why is this so difficult for our world to grasp? And I realize that this is a huge question, <laughs> but, but why, why does it seem such a difficult concept or a difficult action, you know, being more than just a concept. Why, why is this so difficult for the world? I think, you know, I want to just say progressivism and always blame it on that. But I think being in a sinful world, everything is about me and it becomes less about my neighbor or about faith in God. Right. And I think it's hard to choose home because it's way easier to leave my kids with someone else 
and do whatever I want and be all about me, me, me all the time. We have a money-focused society. We want bigger and better and nicer or whatever within our material possessions because we forget to lay up our treasures in heaven. And when there is so much pressure to be making money in order to have nicer things, and especially when the, the price of things is being so inflated and everything involves taking out loans, even to be educated, there's a lot of pressure on women to help with that cash flow. And I think that there are many women who would love to stay home with their children. I think that there's two different groups of women, those that feel that they have to work in order to maintain whatever lifestyle they have, and then those that just abhor that that <laughs> lifestyle of seeking true womanhood. But it is really hard to admit you're wrong when the world is always doing wrong. And like I said before, sometimes there is part of me that still wants to do modern womanly things, but I just need to be reminded of my vocation. And the more I think about my vocation, the more genuine pride and faith I have in loving being at home and providing for my family in that way. I've heard it said that being a a parent, being a mother, being a father destroys your idols. <laughs> and not only do sometimes your children actually destroy your things, uh, <laughs> yep. but, but they they definitely contribute to you dying to yourself, right? And yeah. sometimes I just want to sleep, or sometimes <laughs> I just want to sometimes I just want to sit and and read or yep. you know whatever. <laughs> children at least when they are young, really don't afford that very much at all. And that can be a difficult thing, especially <laughs> especially if we have, have really embraced this idea of everything revolves around me. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, you think about a lot of young people that go to college, for example, have never shared a room with anyone. They go to college <laughs> and they don't share a room with anyone. You know, they they have always had access to their own car. You know, so there things have really fed into this idea that the world revolves around them. And then, boom, all of a sudden, they're supposed to just die to themselves and yeah. be willing to give everything of themselves for the 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 nurture of a child. I'm thinking that there must be a connection between the way they are raised and their embracing of the vocations to which God has called them later in life. Being open to having children, being yeah. open to to marriage Yeah, you know, I think part of this too, and I talk about this all the time, people are not having as many children as they used to. And we keep talking about the um, depleting numbers in the churches, uh, especially the LCMS, obviously, because that's where we are. And people are like so worried about our membership numbers being low and we need to keep evangelizing and trying to get people into the church. But I think we just need to keep having more children. And we're as a whole world, but especially in America, we are barely replacing ourselves. And I think the more kids you have, the more appreciation your children have for children. My husband is one of the rare type. He was one of two kids, but he always wanted to have a big family because he he wanted, he, he really 
he wanted to have that growing up. And so he wants that now as a father. But I think some people, like you were saying, they're not used to sharing anything. And if they, you only grow up with a couple kids and you get to live in a big house where everyone gets their own bedroom and bathroom, then you don't have an appreciation for sharing and having a child who just follows you around all day nitpicking on you and pulling on your clothes or whatever. But, you know, I was one of four siblings growing up and we had a decent sized house. I did have my own bedroom, but my little sister was always in my room hanging out with me or, or bothering me or whatever you want to say. Um, but you know, my parents didn't want it. We didn't have a TV in our bedrooms. Our bedrooms were for studying homework and sleeping. And otherwise we all hung out in a fa- in the family room together as a family. And there was no, you always get private time or I get to do my own thing here or there. Even if my brothers were playing video games, we were always together, you know? And I think you're right. Like in order for us to overcome this, especially as Christians, because I don't think our society will ever get to that point. We need to be having more children and looking at children as a blessing rather than a burden. And if you as a parent are struggling (laughs) and really feeling just burdened by the vocation of parenthood, go to your pastor or go to your, your spouse in private. You know, don't make your children feel like you, like they themselves are a burden. You know, I've watched kids before either in a school or through babysitting or whatever growing up feel like they don't have as much value to their parents because they're off working or traveling or whatever it might be. And that's really hard. And then they're not going to want to be a parent because maybe they don't want to make the same mistakes as their parent or they don't, they'd rather be alone or whatever. Right. Right. So I think we need to encourage people to be having more children and then seeing children as a blessing rather than a burden. We live in a world where statistically young people are growing up in homes that do not have two parents. They, they don't have their mom and dad both living together, married. Why is home so important, especially in these gray and latter days in which we are living. The, the importance of home is so important that I we barely have enough time to cover all of this. I think this is one of the most crucial questions that you've asked so far. And I really feel for those parents who are single, who have had a rough time or wherever they're, where they are and they have to work, they can't be home. And that that's really hard. Home is, is extremely important in these gray and latter days because you really get to provide a more restful environment for kids. And, you know, there are studies about kids with a parent, specifically a mother at home versus not at home. And moms at home produce children who are less stressed and aggressive, and they tend to do better at school, whether it's brick and mortar or homeschool. They they tend to do better in both. And, you know, in this age of technology, it, it is a huge benefit to be there and available for your kids. You know, I, my son is only... I don't even know, 16 months or something like that. So we're still at the very beginning of our parenting journey here. But as he gets older, I really would much rather him seek me as his source of knowledge rather than Googling it on the internet or asking friends. And if I don't seem available and there for him, he may end up finding another avenue. And if he comes to me, I as a parent can always point him back to Christ instead of whatever the world has to offer. And you know, being able also to take the burden of basic daily stuff for my husband, that's a huge benefit. 
you know, we get genuine family time in the evenings or on weekends instead of playing catch up or being stressed out about everything. And again, that provides a nice restful environment. And I think a lot of parents are actually realizing that how wonderful it is to be at home. We just had all these COVID quarantines where everyone's been working from home. I know a lot of parents are continuing to. And a lot of people have been expressing how nice it is to slow down, get some things done, spend genuine time together without going from activity to activity and always feeling stressed out. And you get to provide more of a, a Sabbath rest with your family. You can read the Bible together. You can actually do devotions without always having an excuse and even just having open discussions. You know, my dad and I growing up, we talked about deep discussions all the time. And it's because I wasn't, we weren't involved in so many activities that we didn't, you know, we couldn't have that opportunity. And that's really shaped me as, as the mom I am, right? And even having discussions with my mom too. Be, have it, being there and available for your children is so important. How can the church encourage families to choose home? You know, I've gone to many different churches uh, during college and pastors have different approaches on how to talk about family or how to talk about vocation. And I think that as a whole, the church can do a better job of talking about vocation in a more direct, pure and biblical way. There always seems to be much discussion about just vocation as attending church, donating money, volunteering your time. And that's a hasty generalization to be making, obviously. But outside of Mother's and Father's Day, I, you don't often hear churches talking about or teaching and encouraging the, the vocations of being home with your children. I think it's becoming more common, though, as the society continues to, to keep going the opposite way. But they always say like, oh, bring your kids to church and you're doing, you're doing a great job. And that's true, but I think there's more to it than that. And I think we need to be encouraging parents. I think we need to be encouraging as a church, the bearing of children, the trusting of God to have, have, have as many children as he desires you to have. And I think we should be really encouraging the youth and younger married people to be having children and entrusting God to decide when and how many. I think by teaching vocation more intentionally, we can encourage families the, the benefits of home and the Sabbath rest that can come outside of just church time from, from choosing home as a parent and providing a better environment for your children to be raised, that they may also provide that better environment for their children and future generations. Liz Eckblad teaches grammar and quadrivium four at Wittenberg Academy. She lives with her husband and son in Wisconsin. Liz Thank you for joining me today on the Wittenberg Hour. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.